And we're concluding our series this morning on what the church is called to be. And uh, I think it's been hopefully very instructive for you as it has been for me. Um, It really has been a great thing to meditate on as, as a pastor. What do we want to be defined by? How do we want to be known by others? And like I said, there's lots of adjectives that we could use, but for this series, we chose to key in on generosity, missionality, and prayer, all critical to each other. And what's interesting about this passage that we're going to look at this morning at the end of Philippians 4 through 9 is it is, in fact, a bit of a Christian manifesto. We're going to hear all of those things as Paul is wrapping up his letter to the Philippians. If you know anything about the letter to Philippians, one of the things he was doing was writing to thank them for their great generosity. Remember, if you know anything about the book of Philippians, he was, where is he? As he's right, he's in jail. And who was helping to kind of take care of him? Well, the Philippians had done this incredible job of making sure that he had what he needed in a very dark time. And the Philippians also were under attack as well because the surrounding culture in Macedonia, in, in Rome, which was just south of them, didn't really care for what they were trying to do. And remember, they were also part of that consortium of churches in Macedonia that we read about in 2 Corinthians 8, who were incredibly generous. They gave of their poverty. They gave until it hurt because they wanted and and longed for an opportunity to see the gospel go forward in the Jerusalem saints. Amen? And so what we're going to see is this beautiful manifesto that Paul is giving to the Philippians that is a great way for us to conclude this series And I pray that you would, not just today, but even in the days ahead, pray over it, think about it, um, chew through what each of the things means. Um, And what's beautiful about it is it's not just some random assortment of ideas that he just threw together at the end. There's a great deal of intentionality in these five verses. And so that's the thing I hope that we will see this morning. But the thing that we want to emphasize in this, given that we've talked about the other things, is that the church is called to be prayerful and to give thanks knowing that the battle is already won in Christ. That's, that is incredibly critical. The, let me say it again. The, the, the church is called to be prayerful and give thanks knowing that the battle is already won in Christ. Now, why would that be an important thing for us, the church, in our current culture to understand? How many of you... This is a rhetorical question, so don't raise your hands necessarily in confession. Or if you just want to confess, it's up to you. How many of you some days, as you look at what is the cultural swirling that's going on, how many of you look at it and go, I I think we're losing? I I think we're losing these battles, right? And I think what what happens is we, the church, oftentimes get incredibly myopic. You know what that means? That means our, our vision gets incredibly narrow on an issue. Right? So we take an issue and we kind of view what's going on in context of that issue and we make it the sum of the whole. Like we make it the whole thing, right? So we take one thing, um, I'll just throw one out here marriage, the whole marriage debate, uh, endowment, all those kind of things, and we think we're, we're losing the whole battle. But see, here's the problem is, is that really the battle that Christ came to fight and die for? Sounds like a trick question, doesn't it? I know some of you are like, just kind of circling your head, hoping somewhere in there is the right answer. And the truth is, that is not the main battle that he came to die for. What he came to die for was to take away the sting of sin and death. He didn't come to necessarily die for a particular reason. Now, does that mean we don't weigh in on that issue and its impact? No, that's not what I'm saying, so don't hear me say that. But what I'm telling you is that Christ has already been 
victorious. It is finished. There's no single set battle and or issue that the church must win on in order to make Christ more glorious. So what that does is that sets us free to stop using our Facebook pages as a giant hammer um, or as an opportunity for division and disunity and all the things that sometimes crop up when we find ourselves getting tangled up in thinking that the battle has not already been won. And so that's, that's pretty critical. And I, I just chose Facebook as one medium. There's many other mediums that we could think about and discuss and, and, and just how we act. And what's beautiful about Hebrews chapter 2 is the author of Hebrews actually recognizes that tension. He basically says, it looks like Christ is not currently reigning. What an honest thing to say. And what a heavy thing to say. And he goes on to say, but that's not true. He is, in fact, reigning, and that is important for us to remember, and it is critical for us, the church, to keep that before us. So, and I asked a a tough question about prayer last week, but this week the question as we open up is, do you consider prayer to be a duty or a delight? Both, that's right. Joe Cole, you get something free. You get to vote twice in the meeting in a second, okay? How's that? Uh, No, that's not true. You can't do that. And so, uh, so it is at times both, isn't it? Because as we talked about last week, we oftentimes find ourselves on this precipice where we don't know what to say. Have you ever been in a situation where you just feel like you got kicked in the stomach and all the air was out of you and you didn't know what to say? I remember one time in New Orleans standing in a place like that where I thought everything had changed and that I was going to go home in the midst of great wreckage and brokenness, my marriage over. You ever stood in that place where you felt like it was, it, everything was coming down and you had no words and you had no way out? And the spirit groaned deep. And I did not drive back to New Orleans, my marriage over, and the hammer did not fall. Amen. And so I know what it's like to feel like I've been kicked in the stomach and don't have anything to say. And so in that moment, it was far more of a duty to even try, Right? And I've been in places where I've, I felt like I've prayed this a thousand times. What is one more time going to do? How is it that God hasn't heard me up to now? What does it matter? What does it matter? And then there have been other times where it's been this incredible balm of Gilead to go boldly before the throne of grace and to receive exactly what I needed in a time of trouble, right? And so hear what C.S. Lewis says in his great little book called Letters to Malcolm, Chiefly on Prayer. He says, now the disquieting thing is not simply that we skimp and begrudge prayer. The really disquieting thing is that it should have to be numbered among duties at all. For we believe that we were created to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And if the few, the very few minutes we now spend on intercourse with God are a burden to us rather than a delight, what then? Now, Lewis goes on to make the argument that the mere fact that it is hard for us to do indicates its value, right? And that we as fallen people, what's going to, what what does Satan try to take from us? The means of grace. Because what is it that actually bolsters our faith on a week-in, week-out basis? The means of grace. So why is it so hard to stay awake through one of these incredible sermons that I preach every week? You know, why, is, why is it so hard to care about the things that we ought to care about? Well, because we are 
uh, being transformed to the image of Christ, but not there yet. So there's still some aspect of the fall within us that is being worked out unto glorification in the end. And so all of the things that are good are hard for us to do. And so we should consider that it is both a duty and a delight. And the fact that it is often a duty does not mean it's not worth doing. That is an Americanized, westernized ideal that if it feels good, we should do it. Thus, the presuppositional thing that we don't say afterward, which means if it feels bad, then we shouldn't do it. Now, the, the fall-off on the other side is just stoicism, right, or, or sadomasochism is that, you know, you do what um, uh, John Chrysostom did early in his life. He was one of the early church fathers, and he, for some reason, thought that to truly pray, you had to stand in the middle of a cave all night long, not eat, and have your body just utterly whip-scarred as you tried to cry out to the Lord. And the damage that it did to him long into his life was astronomical. It cost him dearly to think that that was true. No, that's not, that's not true. The Lord is not looking for us to do things to ourselves, to whip ourselves scarred. What he's longing for us to do is recognize that he is the father who loves to give his children good gifts and who can boldly come before his throne in any condition that they are currently in because of the condition that Christ has rendered them in. Righteous. So, <clears throat> with all of that in mind, let's approach the text for the Philippian church as Paul is trying to give them his final w- words of encouragement, this Christian manifesto. If you would hear God's word this morning. This is Philippians 4, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 4 and 5. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Now, I didn't read that very well because it didn't sound like rejoicing, now did it? And there are times when it ain't going to look much like rejoicing for us either. But what is he saying here? Is he saying that um, Joel Osteen is actually right? You should just smile all the time and everything should be fine and everything, you know, and I don't, I don't have total issues with Joel, but on that, no, that's not possible, is it? If we, we live in a fallen world and we bump up against the things that are fallen and the questions that we can't answer, sometimes it's just hard to smile, isn't it? It's hard to fake it till you make it. It's hard, to, it's hard to do those things. But what he's saying is he's saying something very specific. There's a condition here. What is he saying? He says, rejoice. What's the condition? In the Lord. Always. Now, how's that possible? What is he saying here? What do you think he may mean by these words? Well, what he's saying is this. You have been given the single greatest gift of all time. And the truth is, that gift can never be diminished or taken from you, and you can gain nothing better in this life. Rejoice. Because you have been made sons and daughters of the Most High God, to whom you have access to all of the spiritual blessings. Rejoice. Because your union with Christ has sealed you for an eternity as son or daughter of the Most High God. So you can rejoice always in that reality, even when you don't have the words, even when you don't have the perceived joy. No, you get to remember exactly who and whose you are. Church, if you don't get this, then there's nothing more for me to say. 
If you can't get your mind around and your joy around and your excitement around your union with Christ, then you don't understand the gospel. You fail to understand what it is you've been saved from. Unfortunately, I think too many of us believe we came into the world neutral. And we would never even say that, but hey, listen, functional, practical theology sometimes works itself out in how it diverts us from the gospel. And sometimes it would be better for us to go ahead and say it, because then at least it's in the light, right? And so, so we're not neutral. And there's no way, and this is critical, can we do good things, good deeds? Does Ted Turner do good deeds? Yes, he does. But here's what he can't do apart from Christ. He cannot please God. He can please man. He can give and give. He's incredibly philanthropic, if you know anything about Ted Turner. But he is an enemy of the gospel, and he's made it known. He's an atheist. So Ted can do wonderful things, and he can make other people smile, and he can laugh, and he can cut up. And he can, I mean, but what he cannot do is he cannot ever please God such that he is welcome before his throne, which is why Isaiah can say that your righteousness is but filthy rags because it cannot be pleasing to God. I think sometimes we hear that wrongly. We say, well, all that stuff about being, you know, total depravity or radical depravity, all that nonsense fails to recognize that people can do good things. Well, that, you're talking on two different levels. I'm not arguing whether or not people can do good things. All of you can. But what you can't do is ever do such that it would be pleasing unto God for him to receive you as son or daughter because you can't be perfect you can be good, and you can be really good, but you can't be perfect. And so for us, if we understand that that is what is true, the fact that one would die for us and grant us access to these things, rejoice. Rejoice in Christ always, never forgetting who and whose you are. That's pretty foundational, isn't it? Because that leads us into the next thing. Verse 5, he says, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Now, that word translated reasonableness is an incredibly hard word to translate in the Greek. We don't necessarily have a direct analog. Some have translated it as gentleness. Some have said reasonableness. Some have said genuineness. But really what it's getting at and getting to the heart of is that it's saying, let your willingness to love others as more than yourselves be known to all. Did you hear what he just said? Because what he just said is really knee-buckling. What he's saying is don't fight to get your way. And if you're anything like me, that just laid the ax to the root of my entire tree. Because my tree is founded on don't you tread on me. Don't you, don't you dare try to tell me what I'm supposed to do. Don't you dare try to get over on me. That's who I am apart from Christ. And what he's saying is, if you want to be radically different, as you understand who you are in Christ and you're rejoicing out of that, you have been set free to let your reasonableness, your gentleness, your holy other-orientedness be known to all. Because think about it for a second. If you've been given the single greatest gift of all and it cannot be taken from you and you cannot gain a greater gift then what do you have to lose by letting your reasonableness, your gentleness, your love for otherness be shown to all? What a beautiful thing that we no longer have to fight for our way or fight for our rights. 
Who's saying this, by the way? Let's, let's, lest we forget. Who's saying it and where is he saying it from? The Apostle Paul, who is sitting in prison, who early in Philippians said these amazing words. He says, my imprisonment has served the advancement of the gospel. What? He says, all of the praetorium guard are hearing about this wonderful Christ and even some are coming to know. Interestingly, he also speaks of another situation that's occurring on the outside of the prison. What were the other pastors saying about this Paul who sat in prison? Were all of them supporting what he was going through and doing? No, in fact, they were speaking out saying, see, God has judged Paul. God has already declared that what Paul is doing is not right because otherwise he would be blessed like us. So you probably shouldn't follow him as apostle anymore, and you should probably turn yourselves over to us. And Paul, notice what he does. He says, kill them all, right? Isn't that what he said? Is that a wrong translation? Somebody got a better translation on that? No, what does he say? He says, these guys are preaching Christ. My enemies are preaching Christ. Leave them alone. Because even their willingness to do evil will be used by good for God. What's he quoting? He just went Genesis on us. He just quoted from Genesis in some measure, right? He's saying, I don't have to fight my enemies. The victory is already won. I am in union with Christ, though I sit rotting in prison, and I may never see you again. I may die here. The gospel continues to go forward. So when this man says to us, let your reasonableness, your gentleness, your holy otherness be shown to all, he has lived it in an amazing fashion. Why? Because he's better than us? Because Paul is so much better and so much more of a super Christian than any of us could ever be, right? It was so much easier to be a Christian in Paul's day, right? No. In fact, it was much, much harder. Much harder. The critique for him often included stones, not words. And so here's a man who is saying something that he has lived that has made an incredible impact. And that you could tie this back to the, all of this discussion we've had on missionality. And I want to make something very, very clear. When I, when I have talked about in here gospel flourishing, I'm not talking about just the flourishing of your own home. I'm talking about the flourishing of everyone around you as a result of the fact that you have been given a storehouse that cannot be exhausted in Christ alone. You have been given something that you can give away in great measure and you would never exhaust. It is not like our mercy fund that has been, and here's the good news. Let me say something about that real quick. The reason that it's down is because we've been generous and we've had an incredible opportunity to help some people out in a very significant way and it has made a big difference in their lives. Amen? And, and I hope that we always struggle to keep that sucker full because we're being generous. Let that not be the canary in the coal mine. It's not. It's not. We should always hopefully need more to be more generous and more merciful and more, more just, right? We should always long to let our gentleness, our reasonableness, and our holy otherness be known to all. Notice what Paul says as the why, because the Lord is hand. What's he saying there? Now, some commentators like to go one way and say it means because the Lord resides within them. Their union with Christ, he is within them and grants them the ability and power to do that. Others like to say that it has more to do with his return, 
that they're saying, he's saying you can be reasonable and gentle because you know the Lord is coming back to deliver you from this present evil age. And then there's some commentators, which is where I fall, who think it is both and. It is pregnant with both possibilities. We have the ability to be gentle and reasonable and care more about others than we care about ourselves, to care more about them knowing Jesus than us being right. Which is a very tense thing because sometimes it's easier just to be right, isn't it? And so, so it is only because Christ is in us that we could do something like that. And it is only because we know that Christ has not left us to make it all better, to to try to figure it out without him. No, he's coming back to make all things new. Which means that between the now and the not yet, we can be exhausted as a resource. Amen. So the thing that comes to mind, I love this quote by Moises Silva from Philippians. He says this, he says, genuine Christian joy is not inward looking. Let me say that again. Genuine Christian joy is not just merely inward looking. It is not by concentrating on our need for happiness, but on the needs of others that we learn to rejoice. In other words, Paul expects believers to be guided by a frame of mind that does not put priority on personal rights. I find that offensive too, by the way. But I also find that it is the great key to freedom. And if I want to see that God is real, and I want to see God work in amazing and supernatural ways, this has got to become true that my personal rights, my limited view, my myopic ability in my own little universe has got to be expanded. He goes on to say, believers whose primary concern is whether or not they are being dealt with fairly will fail to exercise a fundamental element of Christian behavior, preferring others above themselves. Let me ask you, did Christ open his mouth and challenged the system as he was being taken to a kangaroo court and tried for something for which he was not guilty. As the sheep was being led to the slaughter, did he open his mouth according to Isaiah 53? No. The one who could have fought most and fought hardest for his rights, this, this unjust reality, was able to say, not my will, Lord, but yours be done. Even Peter picked up on that in the book of Acts when he said, you all crucified the Christ. And had you known who he was, you wouldn't have done it. But it was God's will. So if that is the image in which we are being transformed, don't you think that's some part of it for us? That we would not be so strident about things and that we would begin to ask the question of the Holy Spirit, hey, what should we be fighting for here, this person's salvation or my rights? Is it always that we are supposed to lose and get trampled on? No, that's not what I'm saying. But it's not always that we should win. All I'm, I'm saying is that, and we're getting to this, is that in prayer we should ask the question because the Spirit knows better than you do. The Spirit knows better than I do. The Spirit knows what's going on far beyond anything I can comprehend. So in dependence, I should say, given this situation, which way should I go to honor you? Because I am free. I can lose in a mighty way. I don't know about you, but I hate losing. 
And I hate looking bad. But as I get older, it gets easier. <laughs> so, so it's easier today than it was last week, and that's good news. And so, uh, so the thing I, I want to ask you is, is what most affects your joy? If you had to think about it, and you, you should, what most affects your joy and your affection for the Lord? What makes the pendulum swing? And a better question is, should it be the thing that makes the pendulum swing? See, what should affect your joy and affection is your fixedness in, the, in union with Christ and his finished work. That's what should affect it more than anything else. But the truth is, sometimes it doesn't, does it? And we lose sight, which is why it's good that God's mercy is brand spanking new every single morning, isn't it? Because if it was left to us to get it perfect, we're in trouble. What most affects your ability to care more about others than you care about yourself? Again, this comes back to what's the foundation for you? You cannot care more about others than you care for yourself until you know who you are in Christ. You can't. It's utterly impossible. And if you're always focused on you, then something's wrong. Because in the gospel, you're going to have many opportunities to care about others than, than you care more about yourself. And yes, it gets, becomes a tangled mess, doesn't it? Because again, remember who we are apart from Christ. Give me law, but don't you dare hold me accountable. Tell me the rules. Tell me exactly what I'm supposed to do. But don't you dare ever ask me if I've done it. And then knowing who we are is helpful, isn't it? So that we can recognize that that's not what the gospel calls us to be and do. Now let's look at uh, verses 6 and 7. So out of that rejoicing, out of that desire to let our otherness be known to everyone, um, because the Lord is at hand, Paul says, do not be anxious about anything. How many of you think, well, I got that licked. Nothing ever makes me anxious. I don't know if you're a Florida State fan. I'm sorry, I don't, that's not a good reference. My daughter goes to Florida State, so fair enough. But, but we are, we're, we're utterly unable to control our anxiousness, aren't we? I mean, we just, you can do all the breathing techniques you want, you can do, you can, right, Jennifer? I mean, Jennifer can teach you how to hold your spleen to the left. I don't know how that's possible, but it is. And so, and so you can do all the things that you want, but what you, you cannot stop. You cannot stop that nagging thing in the dark of the night that continues to plague you, that question, that moment, that, that confrontation, whatever it is, you cannot keep it at bay in your own strength. But yet Paul says, do not be anxious for anything. Now, some people have accused Paul of speaking in superlatives and hyperbole such that no human being could accomplish these things, and maybe Paul was just a, trying to make us all feel bad so he'd look better. Well, no, that's not the case. Listen to what he tells us to do. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, let me unpack what he just said. What he said is, instead of you being all torn up and torqued out and anxious, first remember who and whose you are and take all of your requests to the good father whom you know loves to give good gifts to his children. And a good thing to do is remember how he's already been faithful, how he's already given you and, and provided for you and served you. Do it with thanksgiving. 
take time daily to give thanks to the Lord for all the good that he does. I'm, I, I promise you it will begin to transform you. There's much that we take for granted, and I've talked about this in here before. So one of the critical hallmarks of the prayer life of the church is that we be a people who first give thanks. Give thanks for all the good that he's done. And primarily, we go all the way back to that verse 4, don't we? We give thanks first and foremost for Christ. Because if you've been given the single greatest gift, what makes you think that he's going to just toy with you and torture you over all of your days? Dangle you over the pit, as it were. So we should be folks who give thanks for Christ and give thanks for all the ways in which God has been faithful, which gives us and grants us the better ability to bring our requests to the Lord God. Because why? Because we know he longs to give good things to his children. But we also have to recognize that we as his children can't see it all. And that sometimes the good of the gift that he gives us is not really what we wanted, not really what we thought, but we got to remember how small we are, don't we? So a critical aspect of prayer is remembering God's goodness and remembering our smallness, our narrowness, our inability to, to know exactly what it is that we need and trust the one who has provided exactly what we needed over time. Amen? And so the good news is we, we get in supplications, some see that as, as prayers for others, and then we also get to make requests for ourselves. So are we to never tell God what we need? Are we to only pray these high, theological, glorious, doctrinal prayers as if God didn't know who he was? No, there's times we got to ask him for stuff. And there's times that, that, that we need to ask for stuff on behalf of others before him, recognizing that he in his sovereignty and his goodness will deal with it in his own will, in his own way, and it will always be for the good of those who love him. And so we have this grand and glorious gift. If you don't want to be anxious, the cure to your anxiety is that you would take it to the one on whom you can cast all of your cares and all of your anxieties, who can absorb it all, and this is the kind of church that we want to be. Do you, would you rather be known for our anxiousness, our fear of the culture, our, our, our fortressness because we're scared of what those kind of people showing up at our church would do to change the DNA? Is that what we want to be known for? I don't want to be known for that, and I hope you don't either. I want us to be known for being a boldly praying church. I don't want only for one strand of denominational uh, 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 people have all of the joy of crying out to the good God who answers the prayers of his children. I want us to grow in our expectancy. I heard a, a quote just this past week. I went to an event at RTS. And this guy's 82 years old. He just lost his wife in the last year. His name is Archie Parrish. And when he said this, I wanted to get up and run out because I thought he may say something worse. But he said, when we, and this is a paraphrase, by the way, so if I get this slightly wrong, don't hang him for it, hang me for it. But here's what I think he said. When we fail to pray with confidence and expectation, listen to this, we are violating the third commandment. Let me say that again. 
When we fail to pray with confidence and expectation, we are violating the third commandment and taking the Lord's name in vain. Whoa, 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 whoa. whoa. Let's back that up. Rewind the tape. Let's rethink what we just said here. Because that's heavy, isn't it? Because if you pray in Jesus' name, right? Why why do we pray in Jesus' name? Because somebody told us to? Or is there something more significant about it? Because he told us to... Because he said, that which you ask for in my name will be granted unto you. Now, did I, well, um, some of you are worried and you're thinking about bringing me up on charges because you think I just went prosperity gospel on you, and no, I didn't. And, and what I mean by that is, and what is critical for us to understand is that it's always according to God's will and not ours. And it's always according to our greater good and not what we think is good. Right? And so we have this grand liberty that when we pray, we should pray with expectancy and confidence because when you say, you pray something in the Lord's name, expecting it not to happen, what did you just say about the name of the Lord? You just took it in vain. You said, what I am doing is in vain and I'm going to stick Christ's name to it. Yes, you just violated the third commandment. I agree with Archie. I don't want to because I'm guilty. I have often prayed and prayed with no expectancy whatsoever and thought it was just mere duty and I thought, well, Lord, maybe if it makes its way to the throne, I don't know, maybe it'll kick up some dust somewhere in heaven. I I don't even know. Or I prayed for somebody that I thought was too far gone, thinking that they are too far gone. And in so doing, I took the name of the Lord in vain. And so do you when you pray without some sort of expectancy that the Lord who is good and longs to give good gifts to his children will answer the prayer that you have prayed in a measure that will bring him great glory and you great grace and joy. So would that we would be a church who would begin to pray with great expectancy and boldness and confidence that the Lord God is good. Now, it's helpful if your theology is good, so you pray for the right things, right? It makes it less hard on us. So I'm not casting that out. Don't hear me do that, but but hear me rightly say that if we're going to pray in the name of Christ for things that are good, for things to change, then we need to do so with boldness and confidence lest we take the name of the Lord in vain. And listen at what we get as we do that. Verse 7, And the peace of God, which surpasses all knowledge and understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. How many of you would say, I hate peace. I'd rather live in turmoil, and I just like to fight, and it's awesome. I just, everything up in the air, and not knowing where the next paycheck's coming from, that's incredible. I can't wait to live on the razor's edge. It's so exciting. Most of us, don't think that way. Um, and for those of you who do, there's, I don't have a cure. So, um, other, well, Christ. But, um, but most of us long for peace and the peace that surpasses all understanding, not the peace that we can gain by our own hand. And so we long for um, the ability to know that there are things that are fixed and sure. And we do because it's in Christ. And think about this. This guarding of our heart and mind. Think about when you've been in a place of great turmoil when you've had a significant amount of anxiety? What what happened in your heart and mind? What was going on in there? What what was it doing to your faith in the God who is good? 
What did it do to your view of the Christ who died for you? Did you begin to doubt like I do? Did you begin to question whether any of this was worth it at all? What a dangerous place to be, isn't it? It's a dangerous place to be that we would care so little for the gathering together of the saints, that we would care so little for the means of grace. What a dangerous, dangerous place to be to be robbed of all those things. And yet many of us have been there. And so here we hear very firmly from Paul's pen who is suffering in prison and may not make it out. Him saying very clearly, if you want peace, if you want peace that surpasses all understanding and you want to have your heart and your mind guarded in Christ Jesus, then pray. Pray with thanksgiving. Pray for others. Pray for yourself, but pray. Be a praying people. And all of these things will be added unto you. So the question that I have is, what most affects your anxiety or anxiousness? What makes you most anxious? What most drives that? Because I know there are some of you in here for whom this is a significant problem. And the sanctification process is not going to be easy on this. But the Lord will be faithful to help bring that to change. But what, what, what do you got to do? You got to go to the fount. And you got to keep going until you are full knowing that the God who is good, who loves you, who saved you, who spent so much to have you, will maintain you. And then what are you most thankful for? We've talked about in here that one of the great places to do this is on the Lord's Day, the Sabbath day, is to review how God has been good over the previous week because we just don't do it very much and try not to take anything for granted. Those of you who were healthy this past week, How'd you make that happen? Was it my paleo diet of Pepsi and Swiss cake rolls? <laughs> a friend of mine posted a pretty funny cartoon that said, um, it's got two Neanderthals sitting around and they say, we're paleo and we do CrossFit every single day, but we only live for 30 years. I think there's a problem. Um, <laughs> I know penicillin, I get it, modern science. So, uh, so what, what, what is it that you're thankful for? And it's an incredible practice for us to take time, even on a regular basis, and think of how it would change our children. Tell me, why does most of the world hate America? What's the major issue? Does anybody know? Because we're arrogant, and we are expectant, and we are a thankless people. And that's not all true, by the way, but it is the perception And what a beautiful opportunity in our culture that we, the church, have to look radically different than the culture that is so expectant. And think about how it changes our children. How many of you battle within your own home with your children having these grand expectations that you're going, who raised you? Who taught you these things? Why is it that you think you deserve anything, much less eight different kinds of cereal? And that was an argument in my household, by the way. So, I mean, how we could change a generation with one very simple thing is to give thanks in Christ. 
What a beautiful thing that we could hand to the next generation and them carry it on as well. Seeking to take nothing for granted. And then what gives you peace? What protects your heart and your mind? And if you do have something other than Christ that gives you peace, that protects your heart and your mind, does it last? For those of you who've ever struggled with addiction, you know as well as I do that there's moments where you have perfect peace in the midst of your addiction. It feels like nirvana or heaven or something. But the problem is it doesn't last and it leaves you searching again for the peace that will not satisfy. And sooner or later, if you're an addict, you discover that the peace goes away, doesn't it? And it's lost forever. And that can't sustain you. So there's many things that we could look to for peace and there's even many things that will supply it, but it will not supply it eternally. This, in Christ, is supplied eternally and we have access to it at all times. So, I want us to be a praying church. I want us to be a bold and expectant and confident church in the power and the working of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit who groans on our behalf when we don't even have the words. I want us to be a church that goes first to the throne of grace instead of the pragmatism of man, who seeks a solution from the throne instead of the wisdom that cannot sustain. I want us to be a church that is known for crying out for others because we long for them to have the same peace and the same guarding of their hearts and minds that we do. I long for us to be accused of something so grand. Let's finish out the verse. Starting at verse 8, hear this. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So here Paul is giving this overall radical manifesto for the Christian people that they are able to rejoice no matter what the circumstances are because of who they are in Christ, they are able to lay down their rights, lay down their rightness, lay down whatever is necessary to love others so that it would be known to all because of Christ in them. And this is a people who cry out to the Lord in great confidence. When others don't have peace that could surpass all understanding, he's saying, that you should be able to, as Christians, see the world in a new way. You should be able to find truth in places no one else can. You should be able to see the diamond in the rough. Can the rest of the world see truth and beauty? Yes. But you, you who have the gospel vision, the transformed worldview, you are able to see it in places that no one else does. Any of you who ever served in an inner city context or you've ever gone to a place where... Um, there's great brokenness. Why go? Unless you could see something that was good. One of the most beautiful times that I ever experienced was it was one of the darkest seasons in my own spiritual journey and walk, and I was preaching at the rescue mission down in Macon. And I remember as I came in, I felt totally unworthy to try to offer any breadcrumbs to these folks because I I, my table was bare. My cupboard was bare. And so I walked up to the microphone, I didn't say any of these things, and I went to start, and a gentleman who I didn't know, his first night there, named Stephen, was sitting on the front row, and he's looking at me very intently. And you've got to understand, to the rescue mission, that can go a lot of different ways. 
And he raised his hand. He said, can I say something? I'm like, "Mm, sure. So he goes, and this is what he said, and it broke me. He said, man, somebody needs to pray for you. You're in anguish. None of my Christian friends, none of my fellow elders, none of the people around me had the courage to say those words to me. But this man, who was a cutter, you know what a cutter is? He's self-mutilator. He's got scars all up and down his arms, and his teeth are in all different directions because he's been hit in the mouth so many times. He is a junkie. He is a suicidal, broken man. And in the midst of that brokenness came this beauty. Somebody needs to pray for you. And he said, can I come up there and do it now? I said, yeah, you can. And he did. And all of a sudden, refreshment from the spirit, I'm not a charismatic, calm down, came through and in and infused, and suddenly I was aware of what had already been there. And I preached with great boldness that night. All because this one who would not be deemed worthy to stand up and pray in most churches was able to recognize that which no one else could see, a drowning man. And so we need to be able to recognize that there's great truth and there's great beauty in lots of places. And we need to be the ones who are able to point it out. This is what I mean by human flourishing, that we are able to recognize that there is great beauty in this fallen world because creation groans with longing. Do you understand that creation is leaning toward you and I expectant for our glorification, Romans chapter 8. I love that image that even creation is leaning in and groaning with death saying, deliver us so that we could be born again. So we are able to see what no one else can see and we should be most of all those who are able to recognize these truths and beauty in all places and in all things because all truth is God's truth. And he goes on. He says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, a man deep in the dungeon of prison, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you all. Let's go all the way back to the first sermon that I preached in the sermon series on Exodus. What is the whole point of the story? Somebody help me out here. It wasn't rhetorical. What's the whole point of the gospel story? For the father to be with his children. That's it. That's it. God longs to be with his children and be in their midst and in their presence. Did you hear what Paul just said? He said, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you all. You will recognize and feel and enjoy the presence of the Lord your God. Between the now and the not yet. Beautiful. And notice what he just told us to do. He said, he said, rejoice in your salvation, knowing that it's the single greatest gift of all. Love others because they can take nothing from you and they can give nothing to you. And you have much to give to them. And he said, pray. Pray it with great expectation because your God in heaven is the good God, the good Father who longs to give his people gifts. And he said, and look around and point out all that's beautiful and that is changing and that is good so that others can flourish and receive the same vision in Christ as well. And if you do all that, 
you get to receive. You get to enjoy the great peace that comes that surpasses all understanding and the knowing that God stands with you. Does anybody know what it says? Jonathan Stuckert, you can't answer this question. Does anybody know what it says on John Knox's statue at the bottom? It says, a man who stands alone with God stands in the majority. A woman who stands alone with God. It doesn't say that, by the way, because John was a man. But a woman who stands alone with God also stands in the majority. And when we are in the presence of God, there's nothing for us to fear. There's no anxiety that can take control of us, that can sweep us away. There's no tide that can wash us back out. So let us be a praying people in, in recognition of all these things. Listen to what Frank Thielman says in his commentary. He says, Christians have often in the course of their history had to endure social ostracism and outright persecution, but the proper response to these tragedies is not retreat from the unbelieving world or a strictly reactionary response to it. It is instead, listen, a proactive attempt to embrace truth wherever it is found within the world and to integrate it with the truth found in Scripture. You want to become missional practitioners, there it is. You want to see things radically change, be able to integrate the truth of Scripture with the truth that is already there. Remember what Paul did at Mars Hill. So what moves you? What moves you? What's beautiful to you? What's true to you? What contributes to your flourishing? So as we close out, the church that is prayerful has these things um, that are, are clearly seen by others. The church that is prayerful primarily rejoices and displays our gentleness to others in Christ. What a beautiful thing that we could be accused of being gentle and caring for that which is beautiful and caring for the true flourishing of others. That doesn't mean we don't call them to account. That doesn't mean that for some, the stench of the gospel is not death, now does it? Did I say we should capitulate and, and be syncretistic and just let everything kind of bleed into us? No, I'm saying we should infiltrate and bleed into everything else. Quite the opposite. The church that is prayerful combats anxiety with thankfulness and confidence in the Father who gives good gifts in response to the prayers of his children. And the church that is prayerful seeks and acts on all that is true and beautiful in the world as part of the grand flourishing that comes only in the gospel. So are you willing to become a church that is known for being prayerful? Again, I want to challenge you. There, if you look on the back of your bulletin in the announcements, there's one thing you will see and there's one thing you won't see. And I'm troubled by what you won't see. And I'm going to say this again. There is a women's prayer meeting coming up, and I am thankful for that. God bless every single woman that will show up for that. But guess what you don't see? And that you've never, well, I shouldn't say never, but never in the time that I've been here. What's missing? So am I the one supposed to start that? No. So who of you will step up and take that on as the recognition that we as the church need to be covering in prayer. And sooner or later, here's what I'd love to see, not just a men's and a women's, but an actual weekly prayer gathering of our people. That probably will be most possible once we get into a more permanent space. When it's, but that shouldn't be the prohibition, now should it? 
Woe be unto us if we say brick and mortar dictates what we can and can't do in the gospel. But I would, I hope, and I don't want to guilt one of you guys into it, because guess what you're going to do? You're going to quit on it in about three weeks, and I'm going to have to pick it up anyway. So I want you to do it out of guilt. I want you to do it because you recognize, hey, we need to do this. We need to step up in this regard. We need to be bathing these things in prayer. And for those of you women who have not been coming to the prayer gatherings, I hope that you will start to come. Because you want to connect in the Lord. If you're worried about being connected and you feel like you don't have any relationships or friendships, why don't you start there? In doing that which the church is called to do in the first place. So I hope that we will come to be defined as being a praying and prayerful church because we will receive all of these things. It's not just about the individual, it's about the entire body. Do you as a church want peace? Do you as a church want to have your heart and your mind guarded? Do you want to let your gentleness be known to all? Do you want to be known for Christ's goodness? Well, this is the way. I want to close with this quote again from Moises Silva. He says, Paul's antidote is very clear. Let joy take the place of your discontent and anxiety. Look away from yourselves to the needs of others, being willing to yield your rights and privileges for their sake. Now, I know there's a whole bunch of you who want to fight me on that, and you want me to qualify that, and that's good. I'm glad. It should stir something within us, and I'd love to talk to you more about what is that going to look like because it, I'm sure it grouses some of you, and you have a thousand qualifications as to why we probably shouldn't do that, and that's fair. Let's talk through that. I'd like to see you equipped as a saint to think this through because there's also trouble on the other side as well if we're not careful. And he goes on to say, and as far as your needs are concerned, bring them all before God in an attitude of thankfulness for what he has already given you. If you do this, you will learn what true and unshakable contentment really is. Amen. So, church, that's what I long for. I long for that for you. I long for that for me. And I can't do it by myself, and you can't do it by yourself. And it would look so much more beautiful if we were able to do it together. Amen. Let's pray. Father, <clears throat> thank you for giving us a means of grace. Thank you for giving us access to you. Thank you for continuing to remind us. You even gave us the words to pray when, when Jesus did say in Matthew 6, pray like this. It's not as if we have no, no way to come before you. It's not as if we don't know the way. It's not as if, as if we don't know the words. It's just we have forgotten how hard and, and how much at war we really are in this broken and fallen world that is still filled with your grand beauty and excellence. God, help us to have eyes to see all that is beautiful and good. Help us to be a people who can work for the betterment of others. Help us to be a people who know that I don't have to fight to be right because Christ has already been victorious. The battle is won. Help this church, your church, be thankful and care about the needs of others, and be willing to bring our needs to you because you are good. Help us not to look first to the pragmatism of man and the utilitarianism of man, but instead that we would have the audaciousness to come before you who are supernatural and can do what we cannot see can be done. We pray for all this in Christ's name. Amen.